So what I want to do is I want to begin by reading the passages that we're going to look at this morning. I want to start that way. One is from the Old Testament, uh, Joshua. One's from the Psalms. And when we read from the Psalms, you'll see it right in your handout. There's going to be a section in bold um, and italics. When we get to that, so the first one will be verse 6. I want us to say that together out loud. Then you'll see it again in verse 8. Then in verse 13, 15. Turn the page over. In 19 and 21. Then 28 and 31. And then we'll end by reading uh, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 or, or Brady will. So does that make sense to everybody? So Brady's going to read Joshua 21, 43 to 45. He'll read the part that's not bold and italics. Together we'll read the bold and italics. When we get to the psalm, here's what you're going to see. Four stories. But each of these stories are concluded with a prayer. The prayer is in bold and italics. And it's the same prayer after each story. And it's very, very powerful. Joshua 21, 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And he took possession of it. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of the enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Psalm 107, 1 through 32. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then the they Lord cried to the Lord in their, in their trouble, trouble, and he, he delivered, delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he shattered the door, shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of, deeds, tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. 
They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and, I will give, laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. We're talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. And when you talk about Christ in the Old Testament, there are types of Christ that you see in various characters. There's also themes in the Old Testament that run that are then ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And one of those themes is rest. And so I asked you, how many of you are morning people? Some of you raised your hands, some of you did not. But let me ask you a different question. How many of you need rest right now? You need rest. And I don't mean physical rest, but maybe it's emotional rest. Maybe it's spiritual rest. Maybe it's um, spiritual rest that you need. We all feel it because of the world that we live in. Rest is a significant theme in Scripture from the very beginning to the end. So picture Genesis 1. God creates everything, and then on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests. Okay, it's a significant portion of Scripture devoted to this idea of rest. He creates Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are living in a garden. You could describe the garden in many ways, but one of the words you would eventually come to is it was restful. In fact, there was no anxiety. There was no stress. There was no fear. It was just perfect. And so it was continually, constantly restful. One day it's going to be again for all who are in Christ. But then there was a lie told. And the lie began with a question. It's actually the very first question in the Bible. It's not from God, it's from Satan. And the question from Satan is, did God really say? And so the question was about the authority of God's word, about the truthfulness of God's word, about God himself. And Eve responds to that question by saying, God did say. And it had to do with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We know what happens. Eve eats the fruit. She gives some to her husband. Adam eats. Their eyes were opened. Tells us that they realized they were naked. And they hid. At that moment when they sinned, rest ceased. They were no longer restful. They quickly moved into the action of covering up their own nakedness. They were ashamed. They were guilty. They were uh, embarrassed. They were frightened. And we see it because of God's first question. Satan's first question, first question of the Bible, did God really say? God's first question, what is it? Where are you? Now, why would a God who knows all things, sees all things, is everywhere present, ask a question that seems to have something to do with proximity? Where are you? Well, it wasn't because he didn't know. He was indicating from the very beginning, after the fall, that he's coming for his people. Where are you? This time Adam speaks. And Adam says, we were afraid because we were naked, so we hid. Then comes God's second question, the third question in the Bible. What is it? Who told you? You were naked. 
Can you imagine seeing Adam's face? Who told you you were naked? And then what does he say? The woman you put here with me. And in doing so, he's blaming God. And he's blaming the woman. It's not restful any longer. The rest is gone. And then the Lord says what he says about the consequences of that sin. Labor for women is going to be hard. But so is labor for men. The physical labor. Work. The reason a lot of you need rest right now is because you're already overwhelmed with what you're about to face today. It's what maybe kept you up late last night. It's what maybe woke you up in the middle of the night. It's by the sweat of your brow. You're not farmers, but you're still laborers. That, that stress overcomes us. We have an aversion to really taking what God's word says and living it out. And one of the ways we see this rejection, this aversion to it, is with rest. For example... Most of us have truly rejected the idea of what we as people, God's people, need in terms of Sabbath rest. That rhythm of a regular routine of being still and knowing that is gone has pretty much gone away. And we know something about it from the Word, but we don't really practice it in any way. In fact, we develop strategies even against it, or even theologies against it. Yet we would all agree, if we had a day devoted just to being still and knowing his God, just to worshiping him, just to enjoying him, what kind of benefit might it bring to us? Yet, how many Christians today really are living that kind of rhythm? What's well, because deep down, it's what Tommy said in our prayer this morning, we really want the rest, but we don't really want the relationship that's required for that rest because so many other things are coming against us. And so the church has conformed to the pattern of the world. And in order for the church to be renewed, the church, filled with his people, must turn and think differently about the things that God has said about rest. In a wonderful book, I mean, certainly worth reading, by Mark Buchanan, it's about the Sabbath. It's about more than just Sunday, though. It's about the liturgy of the Sabbath every day. He speaks about repentance. And this is what he says. He writes... Any deep change in how we live begins with a deep change in how we think. One of the things I'm most excited about this morning is the fact that you're here. At some point in your life, earlier this semester, this fall, you said, I'm going to get up and I'm going to be at PCPC at 6.30 or 7 on Tuesday mornings. That's a change in your thinking. And now as you come, you come to a place where every time you hear the word open, there should be the expectation of changing your thinking. Buchanan writes, any deep change in how we live begins with a deep change in how we think. The biblical word for this is repentance, a change of mind. Repentance is a ruthless dismantling of old ways of seeing and thinking and then a diligent and vigilant building of new ones. Let me read that again. Repentance is a ruthless dismantling of old ways of seeing and thinking, and then a diligent and vigilant building of new ones. So this morning, you're going to hear, like you do each Tuesday morning, new things. You're going to be reminded of old things. One of the new things is this, that if you think rest is laziness, you don't understand rest. If you think workaholism is not laziness, you don't understand laziness. Because workaholism is nothing more than another form of laziness. It's just staying engaged with something that you kind of feel good about and, and can see the fruit of. 
that probably keeps you from engaging in other parts of your life, like rest, or like being home, or like helping your wife with the children. But it's easy to feel the strokes of, gosh, she's a hard worker. Biblical rest is not easy. Biblical rest is not just sitting in a position, meditating, and not thinking of anything. Biblical rest is hard. Because once you strip yourself from the exterior noise around you, what gets really loud? The inside. All the anxiety, all the stress, all the fear. And that is not what God made us for. And so this morning, as we unpack this biblical theme of rest, seeing it in the Old Testament, in a psalm, as well as in the New Testament, we need to change or ask God to change our thinking. So let's go to Joshua 21. The Lord, as he leads his people, continually was promising them this idea of a land. And the land equaled rest. And so as the people would follow God and then reject God, follow God and reject God, Eventually, they get to the place where the conquest has taken place, and now they are in the promised land. And what does it say? Look with me, with me again at verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. Verse 44, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. So think about that for a minute. Rest for God's people on every side. This morning, you and I come to this place, and from many different angles, from many different sides, there are things coming at us that are keeping us from resting. Work, family, health, finances, children, neighbors, politics. Think about it. It's everywhere. But this phrase, rest on every side, is a really powerful statement. I want to uh, talk a little bit about 1985. I'm a senior in high school. It's October, and two teams are about to go at it. It's our rivalry game. I went to Putnam City West High School. I played under one of the great top two or three coaches in all the state of Oklahoma. His name, he's no longer with us, is Mike Little. Mike Little retired after my senior year. He won, we won state my freshman year. He came out of retirement two years later and read three other schools to the state championship, even as he got into his older years, an amazing coach. We played against a school called Putnam City. Putnam City was a legendary school in Oklahoma City. It's where Steve Largent went, a number of other receivers, a number of other great quarterbacks. When I was in junior high, Putnam City playing Putnam West had two quarterbacks. One was Kelly Phelps. He would go on to be the quarterback for the University of Oklahoma. He was the Putnam City quarterback. And Scott Tinsley, the Putnam City West quarterback, would go on and play for USC. That's the level of talent that was happening. So Texas is not the only state that has great football. And so this game would happen. And when Putnam City and Putnam West would play each other, kids would do crazy things. For example, um, we would take out radio ads. Money would be spent to air commercials that would talk trash to the other school's team. It was awesome. We would have theme days. And before Friday Night Lights, there was always the Thursday Night Bonfires. I left our bonfire early with two other boys. Brett Rosterschild was driving his yellow 1965 pickup truck. Will Smith, not the actor. Picture Will Smith, not picture somebody totally different. 6'2", fire red hair, as white as could be, sitting in the middle, and me. We're wearing our game jerseys, except for Will, because he wasn't an athlete. He was just along for the ride. And I had in my possession 
one of my favorite toys. It was a fire extinguisher. It was a fire extinguisher that you would fill with water and then you would press air into it like at a gas station. And then you could take that tank and you could shoot people from, you know, 40, 50. I could hit Frank Bullock easily with that water spigot. And so we had the water fire hydrant extinguisher with us. And we drove from our bonfire over to where the Putnam City High School Pirates, we were the Patriots, were having their bonfire. About 100 yards from where their bonfire was taking place were all the cars lined up, maybe 50 of them, maybe more. Me in the passenger seat, next to Will, next to Brett driving, drove his truck beside every car. It was a nice, beautiful fall night. Every window was down. Or Michael Denton would get this reference, every T-top was off. And I soaked every interior, car by car, at least 50 of them at a time, just driving away, one by one. Well, eventually they left their bonfire. They came to their cars. The seats were wet. Their seats were wet. Somehow they connected the dots and realized it was us. Heading back to our school, Putnam City West, my friend Brett, driving the car, made a really fatal turn. They had a caravan of those 50 cars coming to do vandalism to our school, and Brett interjected right in the middle of their caravan. So they're in front of us, they're behind us, and we know we're in trouble. They know it's us. So then Will says, Brett, turn here, turn left, and he does. As he turns left, he turns into a cul-de-sac. The cars behind follow, the other cars turn around and come back. Will's now riding in the middle, Brett's driving his 1965 yellow on the column shift through people's yards to try to get away from these cars. We can't. We're stuck. We're surrounded on every side. What's the first thing I do? I chunk the fire extinguisher, (laughs) never to be seen again. Neighbors are coming out. Cars are everywhere. And the boys are coming at us now. Now, as they come at us, what are we going to do? I look at my two friends. I said, let's go. I open the door and I jump out. All five foot 11 and a half of me, 160 pounds, is ready to go. Not really. I know I'm going to die. On every side of me are my enemies that I just soaked their car coming to destroy me. And I look back, and my friends are still sitting in the truck. (laughs) All around me, on every side. I'm going to get pummeled. I'm going to get beat down. And then just as they come in, and I'm doing this, you know, because they're everywhere, a gun goes off, a shotgun. Our middle linebacker, Donnie Pyle, number 55, who later, after graduation, would end up in prison, (laughs) rescued me with that single shot. Everybody scattered. It's a true story. Every bit of it's true. On every side, the enemy was coming in because we had made a turn, and it was a stupid turn. Now, I tell you something light because I want to tell you something really, really deep. Every day, we make turns. Every day, we make turns at the seduction of an enemy who is saying, this is going to give you life. Sometimes it's towards things that are not life-giving, though they promise to be, And sometimes it's away from things that are life-giving, like rest. And when we move 
in a pattern that takes us to a place where we're surrounded by the enemy, the temptation is to really think we can do this ourselves. That's what Psalm 107 is about. Four stories. The first story is about a drifter. Look at the text. Verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry, thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Again, you see the idea of land. Land equals rest. Home equals rest. But here's this drifter finding no way. Then, and whenever we read that, it's kind of like we just went through it quickly, but it's really like, then, finally, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. This is a beautiful song. Verse 6 and verse 8, that's the chorus. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Then the second story, it's the prisoner. The prisoner set in darkness, verse 10, in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and irons, irons, verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord. Then you move to the third story. It's on the second page, verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways. Because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. Verse 19, then they cried to the Lord. And then you get to the longest picture. And the longest picture is a story of sailors. It begins in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. What that means is that these were professional sailors. They knew what they were doing. In other words, this wasn't their first storm. They knew how to weather storms. They knew what they would need to do with the cargo on the ship. They knew what they would have to do with the sails and the oars. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. Who commanded the storm? God commanded the storm. So they're looking out upon general revelation. Imagine the stars they see at night. Imagine how clear the water must have been back then. And they're acknowledging the, the glory of God. Somebody made all this. But now a storm has come. God's the one who has commanded and raised the storm. Verse 26, they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. That means their ship is moving high, moving low. And the word tells us that their courage melted away in their evil plight. Well, the evil plight was their own effort to save themselves. That's really important. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. That's a biblical phrase. Isn't that amazing? They were at their wit's end. Are you at your wit's end? You at a place where you, as you go through your days, are reeling and staggering? You don't look in your own observation like you're drunk, but the truth is, to an outsider, it's kind of how you look. You're trying to do what you cannot do, and you're not, you're not yet really at your wit's end. Well, they were. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. So as you read that, who do you think of immediately? Say it. Jesus. And that is the Sunday school answer. And the Sunday school answer is usually right. So say it. Jesus. Jesus is a man. 100%. And as a man, he is so tired. He's exhausted. So he gets on a ship with his disciples, a boat with his disciples, and he goes to sleep. And as he sleeps, God 
brings up a storm because he's sovereign. And as the storm begins to overwhelm the boat, the disciples, some of whom were professional fishermen, they knew boats, they knew what to do when a squall would come. They knew how to unload the cargo, what to do with nets, what to do with sails, what to do with oars. But now they're at their wit's end. They're bailing, and they see a man who looks like he's bailing on them. How can he be asleep? Who is this man? How can he sleep through this? Does he not care that we're about to die? Does he not care that we're about to drown? And so they wake him up. And Jesus gets up. 100% man, he had to sleep. 100% man, he had to eat. 100% man, he had to drink. But he's also 100% God. And he says to the storm, be calm, be still. And instantly it is. And the fear that now overwhelms these disciples is great. And they say, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, who is that man, brothers? That man is the man who says in the text that we looked at last, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No other religion in the world has a God that gives that kind of personal invitation. Look with me at that verse, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. First of all, Jesus says, come. He doesn't say, do this first. He doesn't say, clean yourself up. He doesn't say, start attending Bible study, start attending worship, start attending BSF, start memorizing scripture, start going to this program. He says, come. Come to me. Who's me? The God of the universe. The Savior of the world. The one who was asleep on the boat who woke up on the boat, who said, be calm, be still, is saying, come. Who is he saying it to? To all. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The word weary means beaten down. The word weary means extreme exertion. It means that a person that he's talking to is one that has been beaten down by the world by labor, by burdens. And he's saying, come. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. The word heavy laden has to do with the weight of cargo. It has to do with carrying things and being overwhelmed by them. Jesus is saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. What a promise. That promise is for all. When believers profess faith in Jesus, they receive that rest immediately. It's a rest that will be for eternity. It's a rest and justification that is instant. It's it's a marker. It's a sign. It's a seal. But it's a rest that will not be in its climax until the day he calls us home or he returns. So from the time in which we profess faith in Jesus till that moment when he calls us home or returns, that rest is real. 
because that rest is a person. It is also a homeland that we're eventually going to be in, but it's a person, and the person is God. That rest involves also a rhythm, and the rhythm of that rest means that it's a continuation of us going back time and time and time again to the one who says, come. Now, the most important thing to hear is this. The burden and the weight that Jesus is primarily talking about is not our occupations. It's not being weary from that kind of work, though it is very wearying. It's actually the weight and the weariness of trying to earn our own salvation. It is the weight and weariness of trying to clean ourselves up spiritually before we would come to the one. It's both in the sense that whatever is burdening you, whatever is exhausting you, the Lord wants you to cast on him. But the way in which the enemy works is he really wants us to focus on self and what we can do in order for him to receive us. And that's not the gospel. Here's what I mean. Repentance, as I've said the last two Sundays, is a beautiful word. Because it means to change your mind. It means to turn. It means to turn away from that which is wrong and not giving life and turn towards that which is. And that which is is a person. It's Jesus. It's God. And that turning is beautiful because it's life-giving. But when we hear his voice say, come, come to me, all, all of you, me, come to me. And we make that turn and we hear his voice and we're moving towards our Savior as he's moving towards us. The enemy's not done. And so the enemy continues to speak into our ear and say, turn, turn back, turn, listen to me you aren't really going to be accepted because of that sin struggle. You're not really going to be accepted until you. And so that constant temptation to turn back to the whispers or the shouts of the enemy cause us to disbelieve in the true rest that is offered in Christ. So when you hear those voices... Brothers, turn. Turn back to the one great rest. Jesus, turn back. Final thought. As individuals, we constantly need, constantly, by the power of the Spirit, to turn back to our Savior. You agree with that? But it's not just individuals that need to repent. It's whole churches. It's whole denominations. It's the church capital C. But it's also small groups. When we spend time together like you're about to, there is a temptation for one of you to get out of the truck. There's a temptation for one of you to say, by God's grace and for his glory, I'm getting out. I'm going to go. I'm going to fight the enemy. 
and for others just to stay seated. What I mean is this. Every man in this room needs to repent of something. And that's beautiful. It is moving away from something that you're trusting in right now that won't give you life and moving towards the one who will. And you all know it's true. Every one of us have something, more than one thing, of course. But the temptation is to pretend as we sit around the table that we really kind of have it all together. And if that's true, you are not at your wit's end. You are not crying out to the Lord in your trouble. You're still afraid that those around this room, around your table, are not safe. My friends, from that, corporately, we need to repent. And we need to encourage one another with vulnerability, with courage, with truth-telling. And so when you see someone that you love dearly, when you have a new friend that you're walking together with in Christ, and you sense that we're unwilling to really talk about these things, know that that is the enemy's voice keeping you from truly listening to the one who says, come, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You know what encourages me so much? Is that the Holy Spirit has the power to do that right now. Right now. And next Tuesday, and next Tuesday, and next Tuesday. Also on Monday, also Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. He has the power. He's victorious. Men, you have nothing to be afraid of if you're in Christ. Our Savior says, come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the word that you've given us. Thank you for the beauty of your Spirit's work in our life to turn us. God, the enemy is active. He wants so much for us truly not to repent. He would even love for us to talk around the table about adjusting little elements of our life. But that's not what we need. We need to cry out to you, Lord, in our trouble, trusting that you will deliver us from our distress. Oh, Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, you are a rest. Let us hear your voice now, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless.